Let's pray. Lord, thank you that where two or three gather, you have promised to be there with them. Lord, we pray your blessing for those who are watching online as well. Uh, thank you for the that you are a God who communicates yourself. You reveal yourself in your beauty and your truth and your holiness and your concern for us as your creatures. Lord, uh, speak peace to us now. Help us to repent of that which we need to clear away in our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Folks at home are probably noticing something. We're trying a little bit different system here where uh, Lynn on the streaming side is advancing the slides at the same time as I'm advancing them on the screen or thereabouts. So it'll hopefully give a much better picture at home than what we're getting through our, our webcam. Beware the comfortable pew. We read in verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Life lately has been stressful and kind of crazy with the pandemic, quite out of the ordinary. Uh, my wife Patty suggested I preach a sermon on comfort. Well, and it kind of goes along with peace. So this Bible passage would seem to definitely accommodate that. What words do you associate with comfort? What gives you comfort? Comfort zone. When people don't perturb us or pressure us or challenge us or upset us. But if you always stick in your comfort zone, you might not grow much as an individual. Only allow people around you that always agree with you, and that makes a poor team. It's what's known as an echo chamber, impoverished of diverse ideas. You're just hearing people that sound just like you. Comfort food. Mm. We like our treats. Hot chocolate. Chocolate chip cookies, dark chocolate for me, in case you detected a little theme here now. To name a few, fast food tends to be a comfort food for many people. But if you keep saying, supersize me, or hit the lineup at Timmy's every day, you risk taking on the shape of a donut and endangering your long-term prospects for health. The advertisers have us all figured out. They're only too happy to make pitches that appeal to our soft spots. But indulged in, that becomes dangerous. Comfortable pew, hmm. or comfortable chair, doubling as a pew, as the case may be. Ah, now we're getting closer to home in a church context. Stephen Bedard is a pastor who did a sermon citing the book The Comfortable Pew. For those who remember Pierre Burton and days long ago, a front page challenge. Yes, there are a few of us who remember those days. Bedard writes, a number of years ago, there was a popular book by Pierre Burton called The Comfortable Pew. Burton was asked by a major denomination in the mid-1960s to write a report on the state of the church, and the result was this book. It was a scathing report of the church as being completely irrelevant to society. When he calls the church a comfortable pew, it is meant as an insult and not a compliment. He saw a church that was only interested in their own comfort and not committed to making a difference in the world. Bedard concludes, Burton's report on the state He did offer a possibility for a change in the church, and it might not be what we want. Here we quote Pierre Burton. Well, there seemed to be two ways in which a truly Christian Reformation could come about. It could come about some terrifying church. 
status seekers and respectability hunters, of the deadwood who enjoy the club atmosphere, of the ecclesiastical hangers-on and the comfort searchers. Once the church becomes the most uncomfortable institution in the community, only those who really matter will stick with it. At this point, one would expect the church to come back to those basic principles of love, faith, and hope that have made martyrs out of men. End quote. Bedard adds, There's a tremendous amount of irony here. The way for us to have the comfort that Bible says is important is by losing the comfort that society says is important. End quote. Hmm. You mean... We're not to be primarily seeking our own comfort by coming to church? That a good sermon should afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, as my father used to say? Pierre Burton's book was commissioned originally by the Anglican Church, but could any of it be true of Huron Chapel? Are any of us here or watching today that fit Burton's categories? To quote him, the status seekers and respectability hunters? the deadwood who enjoy the club atmosphere, the ecclesiastical hangers-on, and the comfort searchers, end quote. If so, maybe we're in the wrong place. Isaiah's message is not that we find comfort on a human plane. It's reserved for those who are receptive to God's proclamation of good tidings. In fact, until we see our human limitations for what they really are, until we see our need for divine intervention, neither scripture nor the true Christian church have much to offer us. Next section, your worst life now. There is a sort of comfort some preachers try to offer by presenting what's described in 2 Timothy 4 verse 3. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Do you want to hear just what's comfortable in a sermon? Do you want your itching ears tickled? Uh, No, that's not your mask. That kind of comfort. There's quite a market for it. In 2004, Joel Osteen published Your Best Life Now, Seven Steps to Living at Your Full Potential. It ranked number one on the New York Times self-help bestseller list and has sold over 8 million copies. While it contains a few references to God and Jesus, it's not really a Christian book, falling more into the word of faith or prosperity gospel camp. Greg Gilbert offers a review on the ninemarks.org website. He writes, When you wring the book out, what you end up with is nothing more than the soggy old self-help pop psychology that people have been lapping up for a generation, with the word God thrown in every once in a while for good measure. You cannot simply make reference to God, quote some scripture, call what you're saying spiritual principles, and pass it off as Christianity. That's the kind of thing that will have people enlarging their vision and choosing to be happy all the way to hell. The really frightening thing is that a good portion of readers have probably walked away thinking they have read the Christian gospel. They think they understand the message of the Bible, and it is me, my success, my self-esteem, my house, my car, my promotion. If that is what is passing for Christianity today, 
then the need for true gospel preachers is more than severe. Someone needs to tell these people, even if they're not inclined to hear, even if it's over the heads of their own pastors, that the gospel is not about collaborating with God to make yourself successful. It is not about getting more stuff and being more prosperous. It is about God forgiving people for their sins or the death of his son, bringing them to life from the spiritual dead, and conforming them to the image of Jesus Christ. Whether Joel Osteen preaches those truths in his church of 30,000, I have no idea, Gilbert says, but he certainly has not written about them, end quote. Uh, Just a little update since Greg Gilbert wrote that bit. Joel Osteen is senior pastor of Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, which Wikipedia says has weekly attendance of 52,000 and is one of the largest churches in the United States. So, apologies to Joel Osteen, but I'm titling this section Your Worst Life Now because it seems more in line with our passage from the prophet Isaiah. Just to set this passage in historical context, Isaiah probably lived in Jerusalem most of his life and ministered from about 740 BC through the fall of the Northern Kingdom to Assyria in 721 BC, was influential during the reign of King Hezekiah in Judah, and lived till at least 681 BC. Now, chapters 1 to 39 in the book of Isaiah deal mostly with judgment on wicked Israel, the, the northern kingdom. Chapters 40 to 66 are significantly different in tone and seem to address the nation prophetically much later. The southern kingdom was captured by Babylon in 586 BC and taken into exile, beginning to return under Cyrus of Persia about 539 BC. It's like Daniel or the Apostle John being projected far into the future to tell about things to come. Isaiah addressing return from exile is sort of him talking to an audience 150 years into the future. Now, many of us could accurately predict 150 days into the future, let alone years. Such a remarkable gift is prophecy. So Isaiah is looking past the military attacks by Assyria and Babylon, past the painful, long-drawn-out siege of 587 B.C., past the exile predicted to last 70 years by Jeremiah, holding out hope and the prospect of eventual peace for this nation when they would eventually return to their homeland, past some extremely discouraging and devastating times. In contrast to Joel Osteen, Isaiah underscores three main points about your worst life now. Namely, life is hard, life is fragile, and life is flawed. First, life is hard. 40 verses 2 to 4. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places a plain. So it's saying Jerusalem is put in hard service, received punishment from the Lord's hand. Her experience has been like a desert, a wilderness, 
complete with valleys and mountains and hills. The, the ground was rough, various places rugged. What arid places have you been traversing lately? What mountains are you facing that seem immovable? Have you found your service to the Lord hard? Life under COVID has its peculiar challenges. Can't do this, can't go there, have to always put on a mask. Glasses fog up in cold weather, for those of us that are four-eyed. Can't order that item because it's not in stock. The Israelites going into exile would have had to travel hundreds of miles on foot through deserts and wilderness and start all over again in an unfamiliar foreign country. Then to return to the promised land, they would have had to again traverse wild country. This past week, Ontario hit some new high counts for coronavirus. 1855 new cases one day. I think yesterday was more like 1890 or 1880, somewhere in there. Alberta has been bat- batting 1,000, unfortunately, consistently, so sent out an SOS for four emergency field hospitals, two from the federal government and two from Canadian Red Cross. Not good to see ICUs having to double up. The Jewish experience would have been traumatic. Some folks now find isolation stressful. Their mental health is affected. I was thinking back to my parents' lives and wondering how much low-grade trauma they endured through the Depression that decade. Seeing their buddies and comrades get killed during World War II. Not to mention smaller things like grass fires out of control on the farm and the day the granny floor in the barn collapsed on top of the pigs. Just awful things. Tragic. My youngest daughter announced she's expecting another baby in June, for which we're thankful. But in the meantime, she's lost four due to miscarriages. Very real loss. Life is hard. Also, life is fragile. Verses 6 to 8. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. Note, repetition denotes emphasis. Comfort, comfort in verse 1 could be taken to mean comfort greatly. Here what's repeated is the grass withers and the flowers fall. The older we get, the more transient and fleeting life seems. The clock spins faster and faster. One year follows the next. Where did the summer go? We ask, puzzled. Having some money is nice, but it won't buy you health or happiness. In fact, more of it can compound your worries and anxieties. In the New Testament, James writes, 1.10, But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers like uh, withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. And in the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Our salvation is not in having more stuff. First John 2.17 The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Life is hard, life is fragile, and life is flawed. I mean, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Back to Isaiah 40, verse 2. Proclaim to her that her hard service 
has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Well, sin is not a popular topic, but it's one the church needs to keep addressing. Societal culture would try to dismiss the concept of sin because it only makes sense in relation to a God who ultimately judges. What is sin? Sin is lawlessness. All wrongdoing is sin. 1 John 3, 4, 5, 17. Romans 14, 23 says, The man who doubts is condemned if he eats, has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. When you try to step out of that faith relationship with God, whenever we make us more at the expense of making him less, trying to shove him down like closing up a jack-in-the-box, out of my way, God, we're sinning. Verse 2, her sin has been paid for. Sin begs a payment, a putting right. Sin has a cost. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why the cross is so important. It's where Jesus paid our penalty. Sin warrants repentance. Here Isaiah's language is, prepare the way for the Lord. Make the highway straight. Level the rugged places. Open up the path for the Lord. All four gospel writers refer to this passage to introduce the mission of John the Baptist, calling people to repent before Jesus' Messiah comes on the scene. Life is hard. Life is fragile. Life is flawed due to sin. It's your worst life now. But good news, good tidings, your best savior nigh. The comfort, comfort God offers is not that of stroking a furry cat purring on a fleecy pillow. Comfort comes not from comfort food or guarding our comfort zone or defending our comfortable pew, but from recognizing and acknowledging God's rightful place in our lives. Isaiah points to four things here. God's power, his glory, his mercy, and God's tenderness. First, God's power. Assyrian and Babylonian empires may come and go, but the Lord has promised and has the ability to protect a remnant of his people and bring them back to Judea once the prophesied 70 years is accomplished. The land gets its Sabbath rest. Verse 10a. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. Do we really acknowledge the Lord as powerful, almighty, maker of heaven and earth? Is his arm too short to save? Numbers 11.23, Isaiah 59.1. Does the coronavirus make us quake in our boots when we say we believe in him who calmed the storm, walked on water, rose from the dead? He is described here as the Sovereign Lord, the Y-H-W-H, the four letters referring to Yahweh, the one who is that he is, who brings into being, makes things happen. He is boss, not me. Contrary to humanism, which makes the person the measure of all things. Now, verse 12 of Isaiah 40 who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? 
Try it sometime. Maybe you can hold a teaspoon of water in the hollow of your hand without it spilling. Uh, How about Lake Huron? How about an entire ocean? God's sovereignty is reflected in verse 7. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. When the breath of the Lord blows, our life is over. Like dandelion seeds being put to flight. Do we resent or resist God's right to do this? Are we bitter about those he's taken from us rather than being thankful for the time we had with them? The pagan world has always, was always haunted by the unknowability of God. At best, men could but grope after his mystery. Plato said, It is hard to investigate and to find the framer and the father of the universe. And if one did find him, it would be impossible to express him in terms which all could understand. Aristotle spoke of God as the supreme cause by all people dreamed of and by no person known. The ancient world did not doubt that there was a God or gods, but it believed that such gods as there were, might be, were quite unknowable and only occasionally interested in humankind. In a world without Christ, God was a mystery and power, desirable but never known. Besides God's power, Isaiah highlights God's glory. Verse 5, And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God says it, it will happen. Namely, that his glory, the magnificence and beauty of his goodness, be displayed, be made known. Advent points particularly to this in the coming of Jesus, the divine essence taking the form of a man, starting as a wee baby with the express purpose of becoming our propitiating sacrifice. John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's a beautiful glory, laced with grace and truth, or in Old Testament terms, loving kindness and faithfulness. God's glory is seen in the deliverance from captivity in Babylon, seen by the Gentile nations as the the Jews made their way back to Jerusalem in response to the edict issued by Cyrus, king of Persia. Isaiah 52.10 The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. God's glory is seen in the person of Jesus Christ, Hebrews 1.3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. God's glory will be seen in future at Jesus' return. Jesus himself said, at that time, uh, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. It will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And surprisingly enough, God's glory is seen in you and me who believe in Jesus, the redeemed. 1 Corinthians 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for what? Money? Fame? Good name in the community? No, do it all for the glory of God. And 2 Corinthians 3.18. Now this is talking about you. We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
Meditate about the gracious wonder of that sometime. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. This glory is especially beautiful and radiant because it's revealed, communicated, made known. God's not the God of the agnostics, hidden back behind some curtain. God communicates his wonderful goodness to us, both by his word spoken by the prophets and apostles and in the person of his son. Verse 8, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Note the contrast. What are you banking his attributes? Grace, truth, goodness, mercy, justice, knowledge, power, eternality, all that he is. Therefore, the glory of God is intrinsic. That is, it is essential to God as light is to the sun, as blue is to the sky, as wet is to water. You don't make the sun light, it is light. You don't make the sky blue, it is blue. You don't Thank you for that wet water. God's power, God's glory, God's mercy. Verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her sin has been paid for. The baby Jesus being laid in a rough feed trough foreshadows his humiliation being put to death in our stead as a condemned criminal on a rough wooden cross. As he breathed his last, he exclaimed, It is finished, John 19.30. Literally, the same word that would be stamped on an invoice, paid in. The father was tucking in his six-year-old son for the night. The father asked him, Son, when does daddy love you the most? When you've been fighting with your sister and getting into a lot of trouble? Or when you've been real helpful to mummy and real nice to everyone? Well, the son thought for a moment and then said, Both times. Right, the father said, and you know why? Because I'm your special guy, replied the boy. For that was his daddy's pet name for him, daddy's special guy. The boy knew his father loved him no matter what, because he was daddy's special guy. God loves us the same way. He loves us unconditionally because we are his special guys. Jesus made that reconciliation, that privileged position, that intimate adoption possible by taking away our sins at the cross. God's mercy is not shown only in forgiveness of our sins, but in bringing us reward. Verse 10b, see his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. As sinners, we don't deserve the least thing positive, but by his mercy we will give account before the judgment seat of Christ and be rewarded accordingly. First Corinthians 3.8, the man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. Paul talking about himself and Apollos there. Faith trusts God to offset the hard parts and the strenuous bits requiring endurance. Hebrews 11.6 And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Last and most surprising, perhaps, we find this almighty, powerful God exhibits tenderness. Verse 1, comfort, comfort is emphatic as in comfort greatly. Verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Note particularly the charming word picture in verse 11. 
He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Not driving forcefully from behind as if in a hurry, but leading gently. Young ones in his arms in what position? Carried close to his heart. Tending his flock like a shepherd, as Jesus declared himself to be the good shepherd in John 10. There are three voices mentioned in this passage in verses 3 and verse 6 and verse 9. The sum is that there are good tidings, as verse 9 puts it. Sort of an equivalent expression to our good news. What's the thrust of these good tidings? Verse 9, here is your God. Verse 10, see the sovereign Lord comes with power. Advent is about coming. Our Lord has actually stepped into the scene with us. To encapsulate it with a VBS tagline, life is hard, but God is good. You remember, great. The hunters have been out this week again. I close with a hunting reference, but it's not what you might expect. It's about God hunting us in his tender mercy. It's by C.S. Lewis, and the language is out of fashion, so I'm updating a word. No animals were harmed in the making of this illustration. Lewis recalls, I never had the experience of looking for God. It was the other way around. He was the hunter, or so it seemed to me, and I was the deer. He stalked me like a First Nations hunter, took unerring aim, and fired. And I'm very thankful that this is how the first conscious meeting occurred. It forearms one against subsequent fears that the whole thing was only wish fulfillment. Something that one didn't wish for can hardly be that. End quote. Let's pray. Loving and holy God, thank you for tracking us sinners down, having us in your sights, sending your wonderful son Jesus to die in our place so we could have fellowship with you and be powered by your Holy Spirit forever. Be with us this Advent through the hard times, the scary times, the moments and seasons when we're tempted to forget you and go our own way. Draw us ever back with your cords of loving kindness. May your glory shine out through our cracks and draw others to yourself so they too may experience the peace that passes understanding. In Jesus' name, amen.